My name is Anthony Fatsis and welcome to the What The Finance podcast, where we interview finance, trading, investing experts to help you understand current market trends and learn about the intricacies of new and existing assets. Hello and welcome What The Finance to another episode of the What The Finance podcast, where we talk to experts to help gain a greater understanding about what has happened in the world of finance, investing and markets. So on today's podcast, I'm happy to welcome Dave Collum, who's actually a professor of organic chemistry uh, and a leading thinker on markets and the larger world around us. So Dave, thanks for joining the podcast today. Hey, it's, it's fun to be here. And as we we're talking about, it's a day late, but it worked. Yeah, exactly. We got there in the end. Uh, luckily, it's so easy just virtually just to... Uh, if you miss right. it, then it's okay. We can do another one. Uh, but I, I guess to my first question, you know, from my perspective, it seems as if we're now living in a more dangerous period than we have for decades. You know, there's a bifurcating globalized world. You know, it seems like there's a graf- aggressiveness almost on both sides, obviously different uh, levels of it. But I guess, you know, how have we got into this stage in your opinion? Uh, you know, I don't actually have an answer to that. I have, I have a lot of contacts. I reach out to them and ask them what they think causes this problem. And, uh, uh, you know, is there some nefarious, you know, sort of global takeover, which, which I certainly can't rule out? Um, our world leaders look like complete idiots. And I, I know that they've always been sort of lower on the IQ scale than we'd like, but now they it seems like they're shoving people at us that are just incomprehensibly incompetent. And, and whether you want to talk, you know, guys like Justin Trudeau in Canada and, and, and various players in, in Europe, you know, we've got a demented guy in the white house right now. So, so he's no good. Um, certainly social media has provided the vehicle to cause us to fight. Um, I read a book this year called the true believer by Eric Hoffer. And it was written in 1953. And I'll tell you, when you read it's short, it's easy. It's well worth the read. It talks about mass movements and you can see it everywhere. Hoffer is writing about today. And so I I actually do have this fear that we're heading for a global authoritarianism. I I think it's actually a serious issue. I wrote um, wrote probably 150 pages on it last year, and it, it just seems like this unstoppable force. I used to argue that the Internet was democracy's greatest hope and worst enemy. I worry the worst enemy part is one. Yeah. So you think we should, we shouldn't really be worrying about maybe East versus West. We should just be worrying in general about potentially direction of where things are going. Right. Well, I, I, at some level, I think that if you look at all the decisions being made, no, I think some incredibly stupid ones, you know, look at what the guys in Europe are doing to make the lives of everyone miserable. Right. So the, the Ruskies, they get in a little border war in the Baltics, which which is, as far as I'm concerned, that's what it was. Um, and next thing you know, the energy is being cut off and, and, and Europe's boycotting the supplies that they desperately need from Russia. And so the, the whole thing just looks like every decision is precisely the wrong one. Um, so I worry that it's all about we should stop fighting each other and start, you know, aim our guns up, not laterally. Right. We should we should be calling upon our leaders to quit being idiots and stop fighting with each other. Yeah, it seems like, you know, in the past, I guess you could say with, with Nixon, where there was obviously the USSR and China were together and then he sort of came in and tried to push China more towards the West. It's, it's almost like sometimes you just have to do the lesser of both evils to then from there really, you know, do what's best, not just for the world, but for your, your own people as well. And it seems like that's, that rhetoric's almost gone away. 
there, there's literally this hard, this hard line and there's either you're with us or you're against us. It's like sort of no in between. And we've seen that, I guess, with Saudi Arabia, you could say, and other countries as well. I'm not sure if you feel like that, that's happening as well. Well, uh, I'm going to, I'm writing about the Ukrainian war now. It's going to be a big honk and chunk of writing. Um, I am going to take the unpopular view that this war is not Putin's fault. And that it was, uh, you can, within an Arab hour, put it 100% on NATO. Um, that's, you know, people say, oh, Putin attacked first. I was talking to a guy in the, cler- in the clergy the other day in a, in a Zoom call. And there's some people, it's a COVID group, actually. And, and he said, well, it's, it's certainly Putin's fault he invaded, right? And I get so mad. I go, okay, so how many countries is the U.S. bombed, right? Is that really going to be the standard we're going to use here? And so I told this guy from the clergy, I said, here's the deal. Some guy's in my face. At the moment that I realize I'm not getting out of this one without a spat, my next move is to see if I can knock him into a coma. That's it. That's, that's, it's game over at that point. I, I have to take this guy down. And I think that's where NATO put Putin. And so I think we forced him into lashing out to do what he had to do while he could do it. I'm not saying Putin's a good guy. I'm not saying he hasn't whacked people. What I'm saying is that NATO has repeatedly screwed Russia. NATO has repeatedly uh, turned down opportunities to find a, a happy medium with Russia. We did not need Ukraine into NATO. And Putin did need Ukraine not to be in NATO. I have, I have just no doubt about that. So what we should, it's sort of like, you know, when, when Russia, when the Soviet Union put missiles in Cuba, we said, you can't do that. You can't do that. And if they put missiles in Mexico, we would say, you can't do that. But, but somehow Ukraine, we don't have a problem with that. I, if we do end up in World War III, it is NATO's fault, period, my opinion. Yeah, I guess if you think about why By the way, I'm a Reagan Republican. This is not, I'm not some pinko commie dog. Well, maybe I am now, but um, but I'm not a dove. Although I'm getting pretty anti-war in my old age. I, I'm I, it, we haven't had a war that was justifiable in a very long time. And you might be able to pretend the Gulf War was, but there's even dark underbelly to the Gulf War that 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 is suspicious as hell looking. And so yes, it's been a long time since we had a war that looks like a just war. Not that there's such a thing, but approximating money. So Yeah. And I guess you could say that if NATO really didn't want a war, they would they could have disbanded in the nineties when the wall went down and actually integrated Russia more into oh, so what what happened this is a lot of reading I've done is after the wall came down and Germany was reuniting which <laughs> big Germany is always a little scary um, and the Russians were particularly nervous but but also it was chaos and so uh, Russia agreed to dissolve the Warsaw Pact and we said okay we won't push we won't push eastward on NATO and then we reneged over and over and over and over and over we just relentlessly and we didn't just say, you know, here's why we need these guys to be in NATO or two sovereign leaders. A guy named John Mearsheimer has got to watch. He's the most articulate on this, this debate. We didn't just, you know, Mearsheimer says when sovereigns get together and talk, they don't lie. They lay the cards on the table. They lie to their people all day long, but they don't lie to each other. And we lied to Russia like crazy. And then, and then when, um, we'd promise them something and then we'd renege and it's all part of the written record. And so, um, so, uh, so at Pete Putin reached a point where he said, look, I, these are no longer people I can negotiate with at all. And so um, again, NATO's fault. 
What has been the most interesting thing that you've sort of read or discovered while doing this research? In your um, I unfortunately have come to the conclusion, you know, for the longest time I used to dig and find these things that didn't make sense to me. And I thought I was finding some little nugget of evil embedded in an otherwise normal world. And I, I think I have finally come to terms with, no, this is the world. It's just so if you go back in history, you know, you know, Mao killed 20 million, Stalin killed 20 million, kings and queens and have massacred people, slaughtered their own people, and they've done all these awful things. Read Steven Pinker's book on the better angels among us. I, humans have been awful the whole way. Popes who are evil dudes, right? I just everywhere. And somehow we think we've changed. What year did that happen? And, and the answer is it didn't. What, what we've, we've got is a sort of facade. The U.S., for example, does not support democracy. It, it, it flat out does not. Support. You look at everything we do when we're given an opportunity. We put a banana republic dictator in power and we control that guy. We, we've never supported democracy. We've overturned dozens of de democratically elected leaders because we didn't like them. So a book called Overthrow talks about that and goes through 13 case studies of overthrown democratic leaders by the U.S. So you can't control a democracy. And there's anyone who doubts the U.S. is trying to control the various countries around the world. You, you got to get a CT scan. You're just you, you've got lower brain function. Yeah, definitely. It's scary to think. So how do you see this conflict ending? Is that something on your radar or you're not sure? Um. Well, the guys I've been talking with, which include guys like John Mearsheimer, um, I think the only relatively painless way out of this if Russia win, wins, if, if Russia gets those four provinces along the, along the eastern edge, which is what I think they most cared about right from the start. And I don't think Russia, you know, everyone thinks Putin's trying to reassemble the Soviet Union. I don't think that's true. He, the most famous quote is, is Putin saying the most catastrophic thing was when the Soviet Union disbanded. And it, it sounds like, therefore, he's saying I'm a, a Soviet Union guy from head to toe. What those quotes invariably forget to mention is that what he said right after that is, he said, because of what it did is released a whole bunch of people and who are aimless and directionless. And so so the analogy would be as if the United States broke into 50 states, the chaos would be unmeasurable. And for a future leader to say the biggest mistake was to just let the whole thing bust apart. That's a completely rational view of the world right there. So I I've been watching Putin. I think I first started writing about him at 16 as a as this interesting character. And here's what I can tell you from I, I've read every speech. I've watched every video that I can find. He is not insane. He is the most direct leader I've ever seen, actually, where when he gets asked a question and he comes back, you go, whoa, that was to the point. Right. And so he'll get asked about whacking oligarchs and he'll come back and say, well, they were robbing us blind. I go, I, that's true, right? Just look at Bill Browder's story, who, by the way, I don't trust. Um, and uh, he doesn't get cornered on questions because he just goes, he goes straight to what appears to be the truth. Now, I know he's got to be lying, right? He's ex-KGB, he's trained a lie, but, but he's good. 
And I've done polls on Twitter where I put four leaders and said, which of these leaders is the best leader for their nation? And I'll put Putin against Trudeau and Boris Johnson and, and Biden, right? And Putin will own the poll, you know, 5,000 votes. Putin will own the poll because the rest of those guys are idiots, right? The rest of those guys are incompetent. Putin is a Russian nationalist, right? If you somehow think Justin Trudeau could run Russia, again, another CAT scan, you're, you're just dreaming. Whoever runs Russia is going to be a tough guy. There's no way around it. If you look at the f previous leaders of Russia, Putin looks awfully good in context. Gorbachev would be good, right? He'd be one of the guys you'd want to key in on. But, um, but, um, but we've demonized him the whole way. And, and how many people did Putin kill versus how many people did the United States kill over the last 20 years? And I think it's probably uh, a multiple of 10 fewer people by Putin than by the United States. Statistically, we're the bad guys. Uh, this will piss off people, but I'm not doing it because of a love of Putin or a love of Russia. I'm just looking at the numbers. So, and I think I agree with what you're saying there, that the best thing that could possibly happen is similar to what we had in 2014, I guess, for both countries where you could say maybe not for Ukraine, but then you don't want it to be sort of a constant war that lasts for years and years and years because that will just destroy both countries and potentially Europe as well, which is the challenge. Well, the other thing is the part that Putin wants is the part of Ukraine that wants to be Russian too. And I know, I know that the Western propagandists have said, oh, that's not true, but I think it is true. I, I, think, I think a legitimate referendum from those four provinces, you would get the vote. And um, based on everything I've read. Now, again, I think I have a pretty good skill at this, but, you know, I was one of those guys that when the war first started looking kind of real, potentially, I had to go to a map to find out where Ukraine was, right? And then I have to figure out whether is it Ukraine or the Ukraine, and then I have to figure out how to spell Zelensky in one of 20 different ways, and then I have to figure out how to spell Kiev in one of 20 different ways, right? So, so I started from scratch. Now, how do you do this? Well, the first thing you have to do is stop reading the contemporary literature. You have to stop reading the, the, the articles coming out as the drums of war are playing out because they are all lying. Every last one of them is lying. Uh, it is said by John Pilger to be, is that how you pronounce his name? Pilger or Pilger? Pilger? Um, in any event, he's a Seymour Hersh of Britain, right? Um, he says the most propaganda slather gore he's ever seen. And so, so you got to go back. So you go pre-2022 and you start reading about the players. And you quickly discover that there is indeed a Nazi problem in Ukraine and the Azov Battalion is indeed a bunch of punks. And that if you ask, you know, what city got beaten up the most, right? I think it was Mariupol, right? They really got the crap. And this Azov Stahl steel mill where it's supposedly, supposedly the, the, this, these Ukrainian nationalists were protecting civilians. Well, in fact, I believe what was happening is that the Azov Battalion Nazis were using Ukrainians as human shields and the reason I think Mariupol got the crap kicked out of it is back in 2014 when the CIA overturned overturned the elected you know, Ukrainian president head, I should say. Um, the, the Azov guys went into Mariupol, set up headquarters. So I think Putin scampered his way down to Mariupol, circled the place, and to put it bluntly, he he scrubbed it. He I think he exterminated the Azov battalion.
And, uh, and I don't know if he got them all, but I, I think it was pro- those guys are not happy campers now. Is my guess they're not they're not living in some you know federal prison up in Russia being fed caviar. And uh, yeah, do you, do you think though? So in my opinion, if you look at post 2014, really what I saw the issue was that Ukraine went more to the West and you could say that was because of they were invaded, but at the same time, maybe there was a Russian population based in Ukraine that was actually taken out of the voting um, you know, population. So you could say if, the, if they were to get what they wanted um, and get the four other states, that could almost have the same effect on steroids where it's, it's a, basically a hostile country now with, with little support. Well, I, I don't know the outcome. What what I'm pretty sure is true, though, that pre-war, um, pre-war, the the what we'll call the Russian nationalists. I don't know what to call Russian Ukrainians, right? What what are they? Uh, we'll call them the Russian nationalists. I I think the they're getting the crap kicked out of themselves, right? So so the so the so the 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 neo they're not even neo Nazis. They're actually Nazis left over from World War One, two. Um, they they were killing people by in big numbers and and you could imagine this is sort of the situation we might find ourselves in if something was going on in Canada we said we we got to go up there and stop this right and uh, and so I, I I I think I think a lot of a lot of these guys on the in those eastern provinces wanted Russia coming in they they want they want they needed to be saved in my opinion again the guys with the Ukraine flags all over Twitter right now they're changing their adult diapers because they think I'm just an appalling piece of crap but um, but I have done as much homework as a person can do starting from scratch and and trying to understand the story and assuming that everyone's lying and trying to figure out where the truth lies in between the two. Um, and there are probably a dozen people who, in my opinion, are trying to get it right out there. And then the rest is just pure propaganda. Yeah, it's definitely very hard to know what's what's right and what's wrong. So you know, even you even have a sense of who's winning the war? No, because if you think it like we've heard a lot about Ukraine and they have pushed back a little bit, but then you look at the map and it not much. I think in the north it's moved, but where Kirsten has it hasn't really moved at all. So it's it is unsure. It's I'm, I'm unsure personally. Well, so here's the funny part. So I, the first thing I sort of stumbled upon by going pre 2022, as as I started stumbling upon and in and, and contemporary videos that seem to be trying to get a right. You run into Scott Ritter, who's the guy who said there were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Got holy hell for that, and turned out to be right. Um, Ritter is a polarizing looking character, but I don't think he's lying intentionally, at least. And he said early on, he says, the Russians are not going to do urban warfare. They are going to sucker the goddamn uh, Ukrainian troops into the cities to protect the cities. And then they're going to back around, go around the city and go to where they really want to get to. And then it started playing out exactly like that. In fact, the beginning of the war, uh, you couldn't even tell that you could, it was almost humorous where the where, where the, the State Department was saying there's going to be a war. The Ukrainians were saying, could you pro- provide us evidence? The Russians are going to attack. And then you got the Russians who are humorously saying, could you tell us what they were supposed to attack? And so there was this comic quality about it. And then the war starts. I drove my wife nuts because I kept saying, you know, Candace, this doesn't look like a war to me. Now, it does now, for the record, but it, I said, it doesn't look like a war to me. She said, of course it's a war. I go, no, go watch Saving Private Ryan. Go watch the way we bombed the hell out of Baghdad. That's a war. And what you'd see 
is first of all, you'd see a lot of human interest stories, some grandmother with a gun squealing about something for which there was no content. You'd see burned out cars that looked like Detroit, Michigan. You'd see buildings that part of it had been blown away and you're going, but Putin could take out six city blocks and there's a corner of a building missing, right? You'd see explosions so far away, you have no idea what they blew up. And you just couldn't get anything that said, there's the war. There's the brutality you'd expect to see out of the war. It eventually picked up because we fed so much weaponry into Ukraine that now the killing really got in earnest. Now, when Zelensky says we're going to fight to the last Ukrainian, he's saying we're on a suicide mission. That, that's irrational. Then the other day, he signed some referendum that says they will not negotiate with Putin, period. You never say that. We would never even say we won't negotiate with Hitler because that's the only way you get out of a war, right? We negotiated with Saddam. We negotiate, you negotiate with the other team. You know, the one time we didn't in World War I, the Austrians tried to surrender to us and Woodrow Wilson wouldn't take it. And the reason was, is because the industrial military complex was getting filthy rich. You go, oh, Woodrow, you are my least favorite president now. Um, and so, um, so there were just things at the beginning that just didn't smell right. And there were pictures of you know, Russian soldiers talking to Ukrainian people. And, and then the question I liked it, you know, so you stories like that, the, the, the missile that hit the train station killed 50 people. And it turns out the first thing I noticed is the missile looked intact. I go, this is a fake missile. And then I, I posted that. And someone comes along and says, no, it's a two-stage missile. And that's stage one, it drops off, and then stage two hit the train station. And then someone else says, well, you can actually track where the missile came from because it's not guided. So you can get the distance of the two pieces. You can project to where it came from. And it turns out that it came from the dead center of Ukrainian-occupied territory. So you go, okay, that story just kind of fell apart. And you got the slaughter in Buka where the Ukrainians go into Buka, and two or three days later, they start finding dead bodies. Not that they didn't walk into carnage. It's not like emptying a concentration camp. They found dead bodies along the side of the road in the most suspiciously staged looking pile of dead bodies. And so yet and so so, so, so I think Zelensky is a world-class liar. I mean, a, a truly profound liar. Now, if he is in a battle for 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 existence, if it's an existential battle, you do what you got to do. But his, his, his background is shady. I mean, he's a Ukrainian. What else, right? Ukraine is considered the most corrupt country in the world. But I, I, think, I think the evidence points to a much deeper, darker shadiness of this guy. And um, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to piece it together now, trying to figure out what a, a narrative is, just to push back against the, um, the sanctimony industrial complex. Once you say Russia attacked, therefore they're evil. It's just not that simple. If you think it's that simple, stop reading. You're, again, you're too stupid. It's a, it's, a, it's a border war in the Baltics. Nothing about it is simple. Would you say that one thing we have learned is that the Russian military complex or that the fact that Russia was a powerful military state, that was probably false, that there was this pretense I, that they are powerful, but doesn't seem like it? I, it it's, I don't know. They, they didn't bring the, first of all, they didn't bring enough troops, supposedly, according to guys like this guy named Colonel Doug McGregor, who talks about this, and a guy named Colonel uh, Richard, um, not Scott, 
um, someone black. Um, and they talk about this, they say, they didn't bring the troops to occupy Ukraine. So this was not an attempt to occupy a country. Ukraine's huge. I'd be like if we sent 50,000 troops to occupy Canada. It just doesn't make sense. So they were looking to achieve something. And, and we, in theory, could find out what they wanted to achieve if our media didn't completely black out the Russian story, right? If they let the Russian story get out and let us process it, you want, critique it, whatever. But we shut it down. By the way, Zelensky shut down his political opponents inside Ukraine as soon as he got control of the thing. So Zelensky shut down the media, too. And so, that, again, you want to know who's lying? Those are the guys who are forcing censorship. So I'm unsympathetic to the uh, I, I, I'm sympathetic to the Ukrainian people who are going to pay dearly. But I'm unsympathetic to uh, to those who who always find a cause to get weepy eyed over and are not thinking. I think that's the sanctimony industrial complex right there. And they're the ones, excuse me, I'm only going to piss off some more. They're the ones who are out there trying to save the world from climate change, gluing themselves to paintings in the Louvre and things like that. They're just thoughtless people back to the true believer, Eric Hoffer. They're fanatics in a movement and they feel better about themselves by being part of a big movement. And they're not thinking. I agree that, um, if you think about anything, it's so much more complex than yes than what what they think. Just get rid of this, get rid of that. It's like no, there's so many more complexities to it. And and by know. the way, the stuff we study in chemistry turns out to be very complicated. And in 40 years of studying this stuff, no one's ever been right. So so we'll get in. We'll sometimes we'll say, well, they actually got this part wrong, or they got that part wrong. Sometimes you get in, you'll say, not only was it wrong. But the thought process was so cockeyed, stupid when you actually pull it apart and say, that's not even, that defies the laws of physics, that thinking. But it sounded good. And for 40 years, I've been saying, here's, here's the model everyone accepts. It's not even close. And, and so I have no trouble imagining that when the scientists who have you know, huge SAT scores um, somehow can't get it right trying to get it right, then, then what is someone who's not even trying to get a geopolitical issue right going to do, right? It's, it's impossible to imagine. Yeah, definitely. So if we sort of go over to China and Xi Jinping, and we've obviously had a quite interesting uh, week in Very terms weird. of the, yeah, the Congress and how he's basically taking control of power. I'm sure you've seen that video where he sort of, the uh, old leader was escorted out. So it's basically... He is the only man in town. What's your opinion sort of on what's happening there? Well, you know, it could be something as simple as he sent out a text message saying, I'm feeling sick, and some guy came along and helped him out. It did have this creepy look that the analogy I thought of immediately, a much smaller scale, was when Saddam called together his entire leadership and started naming names. They started getting hauled out. You knew those guys were gone, right? You know, and he, he was basically decimating his leadership in the literal sense, taking out 10% of it and scaring the crap out of the nine. You can see the guys sweating and stuff. So, so Xi Jinping, it looked like a power play of some kind to me. Uh, I can't profess to understand what's happening there. About two or three years ago, I said, okay, everything's, everything is somehow stemming from China. I don't know how, but, but China is the Rosetta Stone. If you can understand China, stupidly forgetting that no one is ever going to understand China. Um, 
And so I set out to understand China, read a bunch of books on China stuff, and I, and I, don't, I don't understand anything. I, 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 what you will notice is that this year, which is a turbulent year, besides that one video, there's nothing. It's, it's, it's crickets. And the, the big story was China shut down due to COVID, zero tolerance of COVID. And you go, okay, well, first of all, you should right away say, well, weren't they the first to open up? Do you, do you really, does that make sense? The second thing you should say is, do you really think China cares about, the, about saving some of its citizens? And I'm, I'm not trying to be xenophobic. It's just China's got 1.4 billion or something. And, 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 you know, they've got concentration camps with so many guys who are going to die. And, and so then on top of that, um, on top of that, um, you find out that they went zero tolerance and locked out 370 million people. And what got announced is that four people died from COVID. You go, China shut down 370 million for four people. You have got to have had a better story than that, right? So simple model is that um, China intentionally shut down its industrial base and, and the supply chain again to wreak havoc on somebody for some reason, possibly having to do with, you know, we're already in, I just talked to a trucker this morning from air gas. I asked them if they couldn't get neon, which comes from Russia, it turns out critical with supply, uh, chip production. He said, oh yeah, it's really hard, but he says nothing, we're having trouble sourcing everything. So he said that basically the system's still very broken. And, and, uh, and the truckers know, they do know. And, uh, and so, uh, and so if, if, if Xi Jinping sees the ability to inflict real pain at the right moment, right, all of a sudden his opponent is down, we'll go, we'll go zero tolerance COVID and we will really squash him like a bug. Now, there is a counter argument. And the counter argument is that it's much deeper than that. Oh, shock of shocks. You got a Peter Zihan who's a demographer formerly of Stratfor, which is a private intelligence agency, which means you just get paid more, do the same job. Um, he, uh, he says the world, a lot of people don't know this, the world's population is collapsing. They think the world population is it's collapsing. I heard the other day, Elon Musk, when asked what's the most important problem humanity faces right now, he said the collapse of the world population. And then they laughed. He said, no, I'm not kidding. The collapse of the world population. So he gets it right. We're not even close to doing a replacement. Now, my wife would cheer. I would cheer. But Zion's model is that it's going to collapse globalization. It's going to tear the fabric and make globalization. And, and it's not like globalization is looking healthy, right? We've got a war. We've got potential you know, shipping problems. Globalization is looking very green around the gills. So if globalization collapses, the first thing you can bet on is going to be very inflationary because now the most efficient supplier will not necessarily be supplying. It will shut down you know, 8,000 mile supply chains that have been feeding us a lot of goods and services. So this is a very scary situation. Uh, and with the world population just getting older, um, None of this is a good sign. On top of that, it looks like Russia may not supply us with resources for rock bottom prices like they did for the last 40 years. China will not be necessarily supplying dirt cheap labor like they did for the last 40 years. The boomers are now exiting the workforce, not entering like they did 40 years ago. Uh, the interest rates are not, they're not going from 16 to nothing like they did 40 years ago. They're now gonna go from nothing to something. 
and 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 the workforce. No one wants to go back to work. There's a very broken system here, and it doesn't look short term to me. This is not some passing thing. The, the Russians are not going. We're not going to see the emergence of this resource dynasty, this emergence of this labor dynasty. That's over, and and some pundits say that the age of monetary policy is over, which is a fascinating way of putting it. And that is basically saying the central banks are out of ammo. And the V bounces, you know, all those V bounces, the markets get fluttery. And then all of a sudden, the, boom, it goes back up. And the investors for 40 years have been taught, just, just hang on, just hang on. You'll always get saved. Just hang on. I think the 40 years of V-bounces are those 40 wonderful years in which tailwinds carried the ship. And if those tailwinds, of which I listed at least four, are over, those V-bounces are over. And I've got an argument. I was on a Twitter space with a guy named George Noble, for example, who's, who's Peter Lynch's, famous Peter Lynch's understudy. I said, George, I think the markets are going to be uninvestable. And he said, what do you mean by that? And I said, well, imagine the Nikkei's a model. The Nikkei peaked in 89 and it's still underwater. It's, it's, been, it's been three decades and it's still underwater. I said, I think the markets are going to look like that. If you were a U.S. investor in 67 to 81, there was nothing you could do in the equity markets that would make you money. You know, you say, oh, you could pick this very carefully. And no, you can't. Right? You, you, you did, no, no one's that good a sharpshooter. And if they are, it's not going to help me. Um, and so I, th I think we're looking at a seriously, we may be looking at the, the grinding down of, of four decades of excess. And it, it doesn't mean it's going to stop. You know, the Great Depression, you know, how horrible it was, 75% of people worked. It was the greatest decade for what are called secondary inventions, which are things like you invent electricity, that's primary, you invent appliances, those are secondary. The 1930s was the best decade for secondary inventions. And so you can do fine, but, but it can still suck pretty bad. And, uh, and I think we're going to go through this period where we're just, it's going to be the long slog. It's, it's just, and we're going to, why can't we get back on our feet, right? And what got us back on our feet from the depression, I got in an argument with a Stanford economist, I think it was. And I said, the Great Depression didn't end until after World War II. He said, no, nah, the evidence doesn't support that. I, I, and I said, look, the, the deprived, you know, low consumption, low this, low that. We were living austere, austere world. It was only when the war ended that we started really rocking. He said, no, nah, GDP grew 15% over the World War II. And then I, I spent many years pondering that argument that I had. And then I finally went at him last year, two years ago, and said, uh, the GDP during World War II were highly depreciating weapons. We were cranking out war machines. That's not real GDP. That is not GDP. Real GDP is when you create something like a factory that, that then makes you a more productive society. Now, what we did create was, was we put um, Henry Ford's idea of mass production on steroids. So we came out of World War II knowing how to mass produce anything. We came out of World War II with your region of the world bombed the holy hell and us still on our feet. So we got out of our post-war mess by controlling 80% of the world GDP. So life was pretty good for Americans. And we had 
agriculture, we had tremendous natural resources, we had oil, we had we had a boomer demographic about to show up 20 years later. It was a good time for us. And I think we're still okay, but the expectations are still way too high. Try to be a doomer. Yeah. So do you think we would go to say maybe more of a sort of value investing type world where it's more about, I guess, cash flow returns, et cetera? Uh, yes and no. So yes, to the extent that uh, Facebook just went down 20%. You saw that, right? Yeah. <laughs> Facebook is a piece of crap, right? What about Facebook makes our lives better, right? Facebook is not General Motors. It's not Alcoa. It's not General General Electric. It's not none of those things. Although General Electric's not General Electric either now, but um, and and Twitter and and Netflix. Netflix is a poor man's HBO. It's a load of crap. And and you know Google's great at what it does. Boy, pioneering and Amazon. I will make the Amazon. Amazon's done a great job, but a more pioneering version of Amazon was the Sears Roebuck catalog. Sears Roebuck. Sears Roebuck took sales. To a, to a national international level by putting out the catalog. That was the Amazon prototype right there. And they allowed people anywhere in the country to order goods and services from the catalog. So they didn't have to go to the country store and buy barrels of flour. They could buy prefab houses and parts for their cars and things like that. So, um, so I, I think we are gonna go back to, we, we have to have the wake up call that says you have to create wealth. And wealth might be defined differently now, but it can't be bullshit. Right? It, it can't be someone, you know, why did we put salesforce.com in the Dow? We took out Exxon. So by the way, in 2020, I moved into energy stepwise. When, when they took Exxon out of the Dow, I said, okay, that's a, that's a bottom call right there. That's so stupid. They replaced with salesforce.com. And then Jesse Felder told me, he said that, yeah, the, the S&P is, um, it used to be 16% energy is now 2%. I go, oh, another bottom call right there. You tell me that the, that the thing that fuels modern civilization, the source of the enthalpy that, that brings order to disorder, that's 2% of the S&P? That's nuts. And so I, I started going into energy and so far it's worked out. Now, here's the counter argument to that, and that is, if we get a bad secular bear market, what John Hussman has shown us is that if you take the 10 deciles of valuation, you will find that all 10 deciles drop pretty badly. So I think the real buying opportunity is going to be, and, and I, I'm going into energy now because I, I, I got to get started. I, I can't just wait and wait and wait, hoping that I'll be able to pick some bottoms. I, I've got to get started. I'm going into uranium and miners and stuff like that. But the real opportunity, if you want to say the buy of a lifetime will be if we end up in some layman baloney moment. By the way, Credit Suisse looks like it's swirling the drain right now. Credit Suisse is down 16% today, and it's, it's already denying that it has a problem, which means it's probably got a month left to live. And, uh, and, uh, and that, that's just the beginning. When you have a real secular problem, it, banks start failing, companies start failing, bodies start floating to the surface, bones are breaking, teeth are flying. That, that's, that's what a real, a real broken market looks like after, after years of, of, of uh, monetary excess, years of constant growth of corporate debt, 
corporate debt to buy back shares to pump the share prices, right? That just, the markets are about 100% overvalued right now, right now, based on 25 metrics, about 100% overvalued. We got to ring that all out. Now, the energy stocks will probably get hurt. But stocks like uh, ExxonMobil, they're still okay. I'm starting to buy them. I own things like Rio Tinto, which mines metals from all over the world. It's got no debt. It's got a good dividend. And so I'll say, look, I think it'll go down, but I'm starting to take positions in these various companies. Um, and I think I'll get hurt a little bit en route, but I, I maybe this is the absolute top because even Dave is buying now, <laughs> maybe. But, but it's still only, let me do a little math. The amount I purchased is, uh, is about, three percent of my net worth and the problem is as you become a boomer and you've acquired a reasonable net worth three percent sounds small and the actual quantity of money sounds large and so it's a paradox right i remember buying a thousand dollars worth of stock seemed like a big bold move <laughs> now, now to take a real position I'm, i go what what i have to spend that much you know so yeah yeah that's really interesting well i think one thing you mentioned there is obviously Facebook have gone down, but you mentioned Amazon. But if you think about all the top five companies of the S&P, which makes up close to 20, 20%, they're all based on consumption. They're all based right. on advertising. So when we see this recession, but which may not occur because we saw that the GDP in the US went up today. But if you know if we do see a recession, then those stocks you'd think would start losing money. The companies start losing money and then they- well, We're always going to see a recession. And by the way, if, and I think the recession is baked into the cake period. I think, depend, so the GDP numbers are terrible numbers, right? They're just horrifically cobbled together numbers. So, uh, so I think there's other indicators that we're having a recession. Uh, for starters, talking to the guy from Airgas today saying nothing's working, right? I, how is that not a recessionary behavior right there? Um, I, I, I wrote a chunk not too long ago on something on uh, on stagflation. And when I was a kid, they said stagflation couldn't exist. And then it showed up and they, oh, we got to invent a new word for it, right? So this was a big shock to, to my parents' generation, apparently. And, and I'm sitting there going, okay, let me see if I got this right. You're saying that when inflation arrives and people can buy less with the same amount of money, that's not stagnating? Of course, stagflation. How is inflationary not stagnating? The question I'd like to pose, if you got listeners, uh, my email is publicly available. Boy, I, I think everyone in the world emails me too. Um, I've been trying to identify a country that you can say unambiguously inflated its way out of debt. You know the standard line, oh, they're inflating their way out of debt? Name one. Make the case. And it turns out that, you know, I had very smart guys say, oh, uh, Weimar Germany. I go, no, they did not. Weimar Germany, we went into World War II because they couldn't inflate away their debt. They, they humped their populace, but their sovereign debt was sticky as can be because it was in gold. People say Argentina. I go, no, they defaulted six times in a century. So where has someone inflated away debt without a default, which inflation is a kind of a default, but I mean the real kind of default where they just say, screw it, we're out of here. And someone said Canada in 1985 and 95, somewhere in that zone. And I went and looked it up and Canada did bring their debt load down, but I looked at the inflation rate, it wasn't that big. And then you start reading articles and it was austerity. Canada got their economy together. They lived kind of austerely and they dealt with their debt. 
So then you say United States post-World War II, it turns out. Interest rates got negative, real rates got negative 14% after World War II. We hammered the bondholders like there was no tomorrow. So in that sense, we inflated away our debt. But we had 80% of global GDP. So I don't know how you untangle all that. So you can say inflation somehow contributed, but could we have done that if we had 20% of global GDP? I bet not. So we also had the global reserve currency. So it's the only version of that. So I, I, this idea that we can inflate away debt. Every time you look up, you go, okay, we've got the inflation, but the debt's growing even faster. Where, where's the going away part of this story? Yeah, as you said, it, it either requires austerity or growth faster than the inflation, which we're not seeing. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Your, your debt has to be growing slower than the inflation rate. Right, you 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 you've somehow got to make up your debt to GDP to the you trust it has got to be shrinking, and and it's not yet. So and all the people who squeal, how many people have you heard squeal about how the inflation will be great because then their mortgage will be basically driven to zero. And I don't hear those squeals anymore because they didn't realize that, oh, by the way, everything else in your world's going to go up except your salary. And your mortgage is still the same size. Your salary's not keeping up with all the, the inflation and you can't even pay your you know, utility bills. Where's that wonderful inflationary removal of your mortgage? How is that fitting into your worldview now? And uh, right now, it's not looking very good. And yeah. I just bought something today and I had a sticker on it with a new price. So I think that's, I've never seen that before of like, yeah, actually just putting a sticker over the old price and it went up about three pounds. Well, in the digital world, we'll put a sticker that, that electronically changes everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think inflation will be sticky at some level. Some things like lumber is coming down, you know, there was some absurd price. You said you're in Australia? UK. So which is right over here, um, yeah. The stories coming across the pond are is that a lot of places are shutting down. They can't pay their heating bill. Is that is that an accurate description in your opinion? Well, not yet, but yeah, it got to the point where they capped the price for residents, but not for businesses. So the price of energy went up five times for businesses. So your cafe, uh, which you were feeding people Starbucks coffee, just can't run now. Yeah, so it, their bill went from maybe twenty thousand pounds, eighteen thousand dollars a year to five times that close to a hundred thousand you think so there's degrees of pessimism about europe in this winter right this winter this is the winter of unknown right this is a huge unknown if you if you had to bet a paycheck which at some level you do um it, it, is this winter going to be bleak or is it going to be one of these things where you look up and you go uh actually we got through it somehow i don't know how Right around, here's what it reminds me of. When we pulled out of Afghanistan, we left supposedly hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Americans behind, civilians. It looked to me like it was gonna be a hostage crisis and a horror story of a higher order. And then there's nothing. So there's something wrong with that story. The question is, is, Europe, is that story about Europe in this winter, you think it's gonna hold true about it being bleak? Yeah, I think it will. 
And then I actually talked to uh, someone called Doomberg before this interview. So, uh, yeah, Doomberg. Yeah, if anyone listening, it'll be this interview will be uploaded a few days after Doomberg's. But uh, Doomberg and I have some overlap that the world doesn't know about. (laughs) Doomberg is a very smart guy. Oh, what personal connection! Yeah, we have a personal connection. Yes. Oh, very interesting. You know the uh, the secret green bird. I didn't uh, know. I got enough out of him. He hasn't formally told me the connection. He he hit. He'd been hitting at it through the years, and then I finally he finally gave me a puzzle piece. I did a little Google. I said, "Okay, there's Doomberg right there. There he is, right there." <laughs> there are other people out there who do know who he is because he has to work with him. But uh, but I finally located Doomberg on a website given fragments that he gave me. He is a very smart guy from um, a, a very prominent position. Yeah, definitely. Just when, when you listen to it, he's just get that, yeah. a legend. Yeah, literally. But yeah, he was talking about the, the issue with electricity is that you need it. It's basically per, per second per atom. So the, the challenge is that if at any point of time, there's not enough electricity in one area, it can literally cause a, he didn't say this, but I've talked to a few other people as well, but you can literally cause a, a blackout. And the concerning part is if there's not enough electricity throughout the whole grid in Europe, that's that's where that happens. And if you look well, at about- Australia, you talk about Australia before the thing started. Australia has got a, I'm told, although again, I've learned to to believe stuff, but not believe that I'm really correct. <laughs> How's that? Um, but I've heard that Australia's got a pretty unstable grid now because they shut down all the fossil fuel plants and went to alternative energies and the grid it just that destabilizes the grid. And it's not just because weather turns on and off, but there's a frequency instability. There's a, the cloud goes overhead instability, right? There, there's, the, you know, just not just cloudy day, but just, just a cloud goes overhead and all of a sudden the, the power just fluctuates. Um, and it's a very technically tricky thing. And apparently a, a bunch of catastrophes in Australia have occurred because they went unsupported into this alternative energy world. Well, the issue is the grid. So say, I'm not sure if you've seen, and we talked about this on the podcast, Doomberg's uh, picture where he looks at the pipelines in terms of gas pipelines. And if you look at Texas, it's a massive web. If you look at most of sort of the Central America, it's massive web. You can hardly see in the land. There's so many pipelines. Same with Pennsylvania. But then when you, if you go up to sort of Boston or New England, I think there's only there's hardly any, which is the issue. So there's these bottlenecks. And if anything happens there or if there's any issues, that's where the catastrophe happens. So it's just it's more about security which is what we've been hearing more about rather than actually if, if you have enough. And it's those bottlenecks which can be the real issue. Right. right. And, and it feels like the leaders of the world are making decisions that could not possibly be worse um, in terms of stabilizing this effect. That's a, that's a, and, then, and then you go, well, what does that mean? Well, you know, uh, I'm a conspiracy theorist. Right. I believe men and wealth, men and women of wealth and power conspire. And, and as I've said on social media, if you don't, you're what's called an idiot. And um, and and but, but you get all these world leaders who are all using the phrase build back batter, which means they, there is some global collusion going on. And the question is, are they a bunch of guys who are trying to keep the globe from spinning off its axis or they are a bunch of guys who are trying to commandeer even more wealth and power? And I'm still up in the air on that, but um, but the COVID response looks like it was uh, a lot of evil in it, not just ignorance. It looks like it was decidedly engineered to do bad things to me. 
Um, I'm in a doctor Zoom group that's had every imaginable COVID person go through the group at one time or another. Uh, last Tuesday, this Tuesday, we talked to this MEP, Christine Anderson, you know, the woman who got the Pfizer vice president to admit that they had not a clue about preventing transmission, which we all knew, but she said it. Finally, the woman said it. And um, we've had, you know, Bobby Kennedy and Scott Atlas and, and all the McCulloughs and Malones, the whole enchilada, Ryan Coles, everyone imaginable. Uh, Sunday, we're going to get uh, Archbishop Vigano from the Vatican, who's been out there spewing some really hateful comments about the New World Order. So it's going to be an interesting Zoom call on, on Sunday. And uh, so I, I, it seems like there's something going on in the globe that is just not understandable to the, to to us. So I'm deep enough into the onion to know that it smells, but I have no idea where the layer of the onion is that's correct. I did, I just know that something's not right and, and it's badly wrong. And I, I just I yeah I'd like the answer key. I'd love to have someone say, okay, Dave, here's what you're smelling, but here's what's actually happening here. Oh. Oh, I didn't think about that. You know. Yeah, that'd be right. Well, if I join you in that conspiracy theory thinking, uh, I feel <laughs> like when you talk about the great reset, or even there's this thing about you will owe nothing and you'll love it. And I, and that's one thing that concerns me when they say there's a worse one. What? There's a worse one. They said uh there's no reason why life has to be meaningful. Yeah. And that, oh my god, you just said that. What? Yeah. Oh my God, that's the purpose of it, right? That's why we're here. Mm. The human, we're, you know, you can say we're here to breed, but you know, okay, we got that part, but but the rest we're trying to make life meaningful, and they're saying no, you shouldn't. Yeah, that's a problem. Which is challenging. So, uh, Dave, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. I guess uh, my last question is: What is one message you'd like people to take away from our conversation? Uh, question everything. Don't denounce conspiracy theorists and con conspiracy theories because uh, what they are is we're just trying to, we're all just trying to figure out what the bad actors, the known liars are lying about. And, and so when you go to say something, don't say, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but say, look, I, you know, I believe men and women of wealth and power conspire. And here's one that's bothering the hell out of me. I gave a talk in the in an investment conference about two weeks ago where I, I actually uh, put forth the suggestion that the mass killings in the United States are state-sponsored. And I can make the case, right? I'm Alex Jones Jr., I guess, but I can make the case that, that these shenanigans are not just drug-addled teenagers. There's more to the story. And so, I, you know, em embrace it. Go for it. Someone's got to dig into this crap. And if you, if you, uh, if you shit on one of the people trying, instead of just saying, okay, I'll listen, Right. And I don't believe you. That's fine. But but stop suppressing the people who are digging with everything they got to find the answers. Give them the latitude to find them. Give them the, the, the respect to someone who's trying to get the answers. Right. And if you think what I said about NATO's horde, do some reading. Ch challenge it. Go read. But read. Read about NATO. Read about read about the Minsk agreement. Read about the encroachment of NATO. Go Prove yourself right or prove yourself wrong, but don't don't pick on me because you disagree. Listen to other people's opinions that you don't agree with. Yeah, yeah, and you can still call me an idiot. But oh, by the way, the other thing I like to, to I, I, my Zoom group has an NSA 
guy in it. It's an interesting group. And one time I asked him who the they is. They're talking about a they on some topic. He said, I don't like to name names because um, because uh, as soon as I name a name, I'll say, okay, Bill Gates is doing it, right? You get to say, okay, we've got our answer. My work here is done. What's for dinner? You get to stop thinking. A corollary of that, which I thought about a lot, is that don't say someone's stupid. So you can watch the Fed do something. Oh, God, they're so goddamn stupid doing that. Assume they're not stupid. And if you don't understand why they did it, then keep thinking. Thinking someone did it because they're stupid allows you to stop thinking. Don't shut down your thought process. And as George Friedman of Stratford, which I talked about earlier, said, assume all the players are smart. Don't think of some guy sitting in a cave in Afghanistan with a towel wrapped around his head that he's an idiot. He's not. So assume everyone's smart and everyone's playing chess. And, 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 and if you don't understand it, you haven't thought about it enough. So keep your mind open. No, I think that's a great message to take away. So Dave, thanks so much. If anyone wants to hear more about your work and what you do or read or do anything, where would the best places for that be? Well, so I'm on Twitter at David B. Collum. I have an email address, which I like to challenge the listener. If you want to find me, if you know I'm at Cornell, you know I'm a chemist and you know my name. If you can't find my email, I don't want to talk to you. You're not smart enough. Um, and once a year, I write a blog. There's no way to market something worse than writing one blog a year, except for to make it two to 300 pages long. That doesn't help. Then last year, I broke it into three parts, stretching into January, which for a year in review is way too late. And then on top of that, I was so depressed at the end of writing it that I sent it to nobody. And avid readers found it and read it. And, you know, I, 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 it's been read by the Secretary of Treasury. It's been, I, I was told it was uploaded to the uh, congressional record. And, and so it still gets out. Um, I'm going to try to not be so crazy this year last year i left it all on the field it was it was an unbelievable cathartic thing and i I, it just hurt i had a good friend from switzerland reach out to me and say stop writing them you're 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 paying too high a personal price to write these things and then i had another friend said you have to write it because you're the only guy who writes one of these this is the only one of its kind in the world so go if you want to find it David B. Column or David Column, year in review. You can put in a, a year, you'll find that year's blog. It's gotten more and more bizarre with each passing year because the world's gotten more and more bizarre with each passing year. I agree and that's that. how you find it. Awesome. I'll put that all in the description below. So, Dave, thanks again. You bet. Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe so you're notified when new podcasts are released. I hope you're leaving with some great value about investing, trading, and finance. See you on the next show.